on? Is it on there? Oh, okay. If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Luke 9. We're going to notice verses 11 through 27. And we're not going to read those right now, but we are going to allow that to be the basis for our sermon this evening. Luke 19, did I say 9? Luke 19, 11 through 27. Of course, this is the parable of the pounds. As we begin to read and study through the pounds, or through the parables, and we happen to be studying the parable of the pounds, we notice immediately, as with any parable, the Lord's use of this technique is unparalleled. By anyone who has ever incorporated the use of a parable or anything of that nature in their teaching uh, concerning anything. Now, at the time of this parable, at the time this one was given, the time frame was approximately one week before the crucifixion of our Lord. The previous three years or so of His living upon this earth and uh, living with His disciples and training them, He had accomplished all the things that His Father had sent Him to do upon the earth. He had left no stone unturned. He had taught the disciples. He had enjoyed fellowship with them. And all of that at this point in time was coming to an end. His existence, the part of Him that was confined to time and space, that part of His life was about to end. Our chapter begins with Luke telling the reader about a stopover that Jesus made prior to His crucifixion during this about of a week. And he was in Jericho. And on his way to Jerusalem, as he uh, traveled, he had encountered a number of interesting individuals. He had encountered ten lepers that we read about, Luke 17, 11 through 18. Nine of those ten lepers were, uh, were not thankful enough to the Lord to come back and acknowledge that he had cured them of an incurable disease. He had met a rich young ruler, Luke 18, 18 through 24, who could not give himself wholly to God. He wanted to have part of God and then part of the rest of the world. He could not turn loose of the physical things in this life. Our Lord came across a blind beggar, Luke 18, 35 and following, who would not be quieted, who would not allow anyone to keep him from coming into the presence of the Savior and to offer to him and to give him exactly what no other person could. Of course, we all remember the little man named Zacchaeus, Luke 19, who truly learned what it meant to repent. Now, two things occasioned this particular parable. Two things. First of all, He was nigh unto Jerusalem, the writer tells us. He was close to Jerusalem. And they thought that the kingdom was imminent. That the kingdom was going to appear and was about to come to life or come into its form at that very moment. Of course, they were looking for a physical kingdom. 
They thought that he would travel into Jerusalem, take his place on the throne of David, and things would change. They didn't understand the true nature of the kingdom, that it was a spiritual kingdom, that it wasn't a physical nation in any way whatsoever, but it was uh, spiritual. And as he neared Jerusalem, this was the first time that he had actually approached Jerusalem with this great throng of people. And as they surrounded him and they threw down the leaves before him as he traveled along and they hollered out Hosanna and they acknowledged that he was the son of David, it appeared to those people around him that he was about to accept the scepter of the kingdom of Israel. That he was about to take the crown and place it upon his head, the physical crown. Now he at this time used this particular parable to teach the people just how wrong they were. To correct their views of the kingdom. Now, each time that we study the teachings of our Lord, we're going to notice a few things, right? We're going to understand that several people, if not most people, never did grasp the true meaning of His teachings. They always seemed to to grasp the physical nature of it, but they could not grasp the spiritual nature of it. Of course, when we read John 3, and we read about Nicodemus, he missed the spiritual water that Jesus offered. Or rather, the uh, the new birth. The spiritual water that the woman did not truly understand at the well, she missed that. that she was thinking about physical water. Nicodemus was thinking about a physical birth. How can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? The Lord responded to the Samaritan lady, The water that I offer to you, you'll never thirst again. See, they weren't getting the spiritual means of what he was offering. Even the apostles, didn't they? They misunderstood the very nature of the kingdom. When Christ is about to ascend back to heaven, they ask him, At that point, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? The man had spent three and a half years with them, had trained them and taught them about spiritual things, and here he is getting ready to ascend back to heaven, and they want to know when Israel is going to come back in and be a world power. When are we going to throw off the yoke of bondage? They did not understand fully at that time the nature of the kingdom. And so, with any parable as we begin to look at the parable of the pounds, the things spoken of in the parable either did happen at some point in time in history, or at least they could have happened. Every time I read the parable of the sower, in the back of my mind I see someone in the background as Jesus preaches this parable, sowing seed. Now, that may not have been the case, but that's how I see it as I read it. Now, This parable here is going to be easily recognized or would have been easily recognized by those that were listening. Jesus is taking from the very history of the Jewish people and He is creating a parable that they will identify with as it unfolds. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king. We all know that as we study through the New Testament. He was born during the time of Herod the Great. He was king in Judea. And He reigned for about four years past Christ's birth. While Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were in exile to Egypt, Herod died on the throne, Matthew 2. 
Matthew 2, 13 through 15. And so, since he had died while being king of Israel or king of Judea, his properties or his authority, his area, fell to his three sons. And he had three sons. Now, during his reign, he was a most wicked king. In fact, he had killed family members. He had done all sorts of things to ensure that no one would come up and try to take his throne from him, including some of his children. And even in death, or the final moments of his life, he decided that he would give the entirety of his kingdom to his youngest son, Archelaus. Now the Jews would be very familiar with that name. After all, at the time of Jesus' death, he was about 30 years old, 33 years old, somewhere like that. And so the the history of the Jewish people pertaining to Archelaus was in the near past, so they would know that name. And they would understand what kind of a person that he was. Those that were listening would have automatically recognized their own history. Now when we read that parable, we do not have those recollections. But they would have. They would have understood that. When Herod the Great died, Archelaus left Jericho, the very place where Jesus was speaking. And he traveled to Rome to receive the kingdom that his father had left him from Augustus Caesar. And now while there, representatives of the people who were opposed to him taking the throne came and spoke against him as those who were supporting him came and defended him to Caesar that he ought to be able to take the kingdom. Ultimately, he was given the southern portion of Judea And he was given the title of Ethnarch. Now his brother was given the northern part of Palestine, which is the reason that Joseph did not return to his native area. Instead he returned to Nazareth. We have to remember these were very wicked men. They were very wicked men. Ultimately, again, uh, Joseph settled in Nazareth, Matthew chapter 2. He raised his son there. And upon the return of Archelaus to Palestine, to Judea, he did not disappoint his supporters, and he made good on his reputation as a bloodthirsty killer, and all those who opposed him on his return were murdered. Those listening to this parable would know that well. He only reigned for about two years. And he was even too bloodthirsty for Rome and he was exiled to Spain. Now that is the point in the parable when these historical facts from the days of Jesus' infancy would become very familiar to them. They would remember those things. The people thought that the kingdom of God would immediately appear. Those that were following Jesus into Jerusalem, He was entering Again, obviously, in their minds to take His rightful place upon the throne and to throw off the yoke of oppression and again to become a world power. After all, think about it. Here is a man who could raise people from the dead. Now, what kind of a leader of armies would that be, right? If if soldiers were killed in battle, he would bring them right back up. This was a man who could feed thousands of people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread, you would not have to worry about provisions, right? You would not have to worry about logistics. They just knew 
that Israel was going to become a world power. There was no way Israel could be defeated with Jesus as its head. Instead, though, His kingdom was not going to be established over the course of a few days, and it was more like the nobleman in the parable. They didn't know when it would come, who went into a far country and would return at some point in the future. So that is the background to this parable that we are studying. When this nobleman returned, he called all of his stewards together, and he examined their work while he was gone. Ultimately, they would have to occupy till he returned. He gave them a certain amount of funds to look after, and then they just simply had to wait. With that in mind, I want us to notice as we tear this parable apart and begin to look at it, that there was an assignment given when the nobleman left. Now, in our parable, there is a man. Of course, this man represents Jesus. The similarities of history and the facts that these people in the audience were listening to were not lost upon them. And like the nobleman, the people surrounding Jesus ultimately sent messages to Rome, didn't they? We don't want this man to rule over us. Archelaus had people sending messages to Rome saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Jesus is using that historical fact. Later the people would shout concerning Jesus. If you remember John nineteen fifteen, we have no king but Caesar. They were doing the same things as their history had done before them. And as they worked to have him exiled from the country to get out of their, their way, to get him away from interfering in their lives, they were going to do that through murder. They wanted to have him killed. Now, they were not interested in occupying until the Lord returned. They were not interested in anything spiritual. They wanted the physical and they wanted it right now. They didn't want to have to wait on a coming kingdom. They wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. And if this man wasn't going to be able to do it, they would use Rome to get rid of him because he was cutting in on their authority. They did not want to hear John 18.36, the words that, Jesus spoke before Pilate. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight? Then I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. How in the world can anyone read that passage and say that we're going to live upon this earth after Jesus returns? For even a thousand years, let alone for eternity, as some denominations teach. But before He left... This man, he gave some money to his servants. He gave them pounds, currency, and they were to occupy that. And in our parable, the pound represents the gospel. It was a common possession. Though we may not have an abundance of money, it is very common for people to have money, right? Even the poorest of the poor can have certain amounts of money, whether someone gives it to them or not. So this pound is a common possession that we've all been given and we've been given it in an equal way. No one person receives the gospel in any greater portion than another person. No one receives the gospel in any more of a special way than any other person. Of course, the gospel is received. It's not received through a miraculous manner. 
It is simply spoken to us or we read it. We obtain initial salvation from it and we learn how to remain saved from it. But it is a common, common possession. That's why Jude would say, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, right? Offered to all men. And it comes from the common possession of the gospel. So that's what we're talking about. Now just like the servants of the parable, they were uh, required to occupy our common possession. And that was the mission that was given to them. According to Strong, to occupy means to busy oneself with. That is, to trade. Of course, what we're talking about in the particular context of the parable, they were given money. They were given currency. They were to use that to make more money, to make more currency, right? They worked for a nobleman. He was not in the business of giving away all of his possessions. He was in the business of making more money. But any businessman or woman is in the business of making money, right? And so in order for that to happen, we have to occupy. We have to busy ourselves. We have to trade in whatever it is that we have or that we have to offer. The gospel was provided to mankind so we could busy ourselves with it. Notice they were not to hoard up the pounds. They were not to hoard up the pounds. They were to use the pounds. When we receive the gospel, we're not to hoard up the gospel, right? We're not to save it simply for ourselves. We are to give it to other people. That's the whole purpose of the parable. Now the idea is not to build currency, but to build character. That's what they were to do with the the, the pounds that they were given. How long were they to maintain the mission? How long are we to maintain the mission? When is the nobleman coming back? How long are we to occupy? Well, we don't know that, do we? It didn't matter then. It does not matter now. How long or how short a period of time that the nobleman is gone. We simply have to occupy. Jesus said in in reality, gave us the answer to that question. He said, John 9 verse 4, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So, in essence, we work while we're able to work. I can remember working in the body shop for many, many years, uh, fixing and painting wrecked vehicles, and it was uh, seemed to be like with any job that is on a commission, that it's either feast or famine. You either have so much work you can't get it done or there's not enough work and you're looking for something else. And so when we had the work and it was uh, 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 there for us for the taking, we would have to go in and just simply work, 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 work because there was coming a time and not the so distant future when there would be no work. And so that's exactly what Jesus is trying to impart to these people. Occupy the pounds. Work while you have the opportunity to work. But these people hated the nobleman. In our parable, they didn't want him to rule over them. And they sent messages saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Those people listening to this parable would have understood those consequences. They would have gone back to Archelaus. What happened to those people when they sent messengers to Rome and said, we do not want Archelaus to be our king. They lost their lives upon his return. They would remember that. That's why Jesus used the example because he was treated in exactly the same way. Now, obviously, Archelaus was an evil man. Jesus was not, but we're talking about 
the, the facts that unfolded. And he's using that for an example. After all, do you remember what the chief priest told Pilate? said, do not write king of the Jews. Write, he said he was the king of the Jews. They didn't even want that placed upon the cross. They had rejected him. And they had not changed until the uh, time of Stephen either. We read about that, Acts chapter 7, 51 through 53. Jesus, or Stephen gave this wonderful sermon and he told them, you're stubborn, you're stiff-necked, you're just like those that came before you. How many of the prophets' blood have you not spilled? And they killed him for that. He was murdered for standing strong for the faith and occupying. The people didn't want to hear it. I want us to notice though that any time an assignment is given, there is an aftermath. There's always a result. There's something that comes. The master returned after having been, after having given the pounds, and he made a reckoning with all of the servants. In essence, there was an audit. He audited their behavior while he was gone. There were some there were some faithful servants, and there were some servants that were not faithful. One man gained ten pounds with his pound. Notice that. When he explained to the nobleman that he had gained ten pounds, he did not take the credit for himself. He said, your money or your currency, your wealth is the source of my being able to gain ten more pounds. But that's the characteristic of a Christian, isn't it? That's the characteristic of a follower of God. And that's what Jesus was trying to make the point. Paul had that same quality of humbleness. He told those in Corinth, he said, I've planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3. Another person had was given a pound and he gained five more pounds. Again, he was humble in what he had uh, uh, said was the source of that. Now, I want us to understand that with, with this particular illustration, that we learn that we are not, or nothing is required of us beyond what we are able to perform. Or what we're able to do. Paul told those in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12. He said, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man has, and not according to what he hath not. We're not going to be judged on what we're not able to produce. The man that produced five pounds will be judged on having produced five pounds, and that was all he could produce. He will have the same reward as the man that produced 10 pounds. But we are required to do all that we can do. We're required to give diligence. 2 Peter 1, 2, Peter said, Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. We have to be diligent in making our calling and our election sure. Sometimes I believe in the, the Lord's church, we... We shy away from phrases and terminology that denominations have uh, stolen from us, so to speak. We don't want to talk about the elect because it has a denominational uh, mindset to it in the, in the minds of some people. We talk about the elect. Oh, well, those are those that have been elected uh, through no uh, choice of their own to be saved. That's a denominational mindset, isn't it? But that's a scriptural term. We have, an, we have a calling, we have an election. We're called through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, and our election is if we elect or choose to accept it. 
We have an election coming up, don't we? In November. We go into a poll, we make a choice. That's up to us if we make the choice. No one, according to our Constitution, can go into the poll with us and make us choose a certain candidate. The same thing is with God. He calls us through the Gospel. It goes out to all men. It's a common possession, the Gospel is. Everyone can receive it if they want to. And then we decide. We have an election, right? Am I going to accept it? Or am I not going to accept it? So Peter said, if you want to go to heaven, be diligent, make your calling and your election sure. We can know for a fact whether we're going to be saved or whether we are not going to be saved. But in our parable, there was another servant we're going to notice. He was given a pound, just like the other ones. But this man was lazy. He didn't do anything with his pound. He didn't even have the common courtesy to bury it as was the custom of the day to protect it. He simply wrapped it in a napkin. But why? Why did he do that? Well, he stood before the nobleman and he began to make excuses. He said, Lord, I knew you were an austere man. I knew that you were hard and unreasonable. That's what that word means. Of course, following the nobleman's audit, he gave an answer. To the faithful, he said, Luke 19, 7, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, he went on to give that man that had ten pounds authority over ten cities. He went on to give that man that had five pounds authority over five cities. Verse 9. But to the lazy servant, he turned to that man and his words were harsh. He said, verses 24 through 26, Take from him the pound and give it to him who has ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he has ten pounds. He went on to say, For I say unto you that unto everyone which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. He, he hadn't done anything. He had a common possession. Now listen, we have a great application for that today, right? We have a common possession, and if we haven't done something with it, it'll be taken away from us. Let's notice a little closer the announcement. The Lord reviled the lazy servant. And he disproved his false accusation. The Lord was in no way unreasonable. It was within his power to request and to give them a duty while he was gone. And not only was he not unreasonable, he was very generous in his rewards. He came back, he had given a common possession that everyone had. Not that these men had gained it on their own, he simply gave it to them. The Lord didn't have to give them a a uh, uh, a pound. He didn't have to give them the common currency. He could have said, go out and in your best way you can, make me more money. He didn't have to give them a starter egg, right? But he did that. And he was generous in his rewards. But by accusing the Lord of being an austere man, he was blaming him for his own lack of work. He was blaming him for his lack of initiative. And that happens in the denominational world today. This man didn't even give his pound to the bank so that it might uh, gain interest. This man, in fact, he was a lukewarm, lazy 
man, wasn't he? He neglected his opportunities. And when we do that, the Hebrews writer warned us of that. He asked, he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How are we going to, how are we going to get into heaven? How are we going to escape the damnation of God if we neglect His great salvation? We can't get to heaven on what we didn't do. Notice that this man didn't do anything bad. He didn't go out of his way to be evil. He just simply didn't do anything. But we can't get to heaven on what we didn't do. We have to get to heaven on our working faith. I heard someone say the other day that a person sitting in a pew makes a person a Christian just as much as sitting in a garage makes them a car. It makes sense, doesn't it? If all we do is simply sit in the pew and we are not occupying, we're not engaged in trading our common possession, we're no more a Christian than sitting in a garage makes us a car. Now like the reviled servant, those listening to Jesus at the time, they were rebellious people. That's why He gave the parable. He wanted them to understand, this is what happens when you reject the King of Kings, when you reject the Savior of the body, when you reject... He who God has sent to save the world. Now notice how they were rebellious. This man is not our king. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want him. There was a reason those listening would have understood the consequences of making those statements. Again, let's go back to history. Archelaus murdered 3,000 people on his return from receiving the kingdom from Caesar. And when the Lord returns, when the nobleman comes back in the parable, people are going to be punished, just like happened when the nobleman came back of the parable. He's not going to unrighteously punish anyone, but he has a right to punish. He's given us a very reasonable task, and when he returns, he can expect that we have done that. Paul warned, he said, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now that's a very harsh statement. That's hard to read that, isn't it? To understand that Jesus is going to descend. How do I get my mind wrapped around the fact that this man came into earth as a babe lived a perfect life, gave himself willingly to a murder, hung on the cross. How do I wrap my mind around the fact that now he's coming back, but he's not coming back as the babe in the manger. He's not coming back as the victim of the cross. He's coming back as the nobleman, the king of kings, the man with a flaming fire, uh, flaming sword in his hand. The one that's going to return with the shout of the archangel, he told the Thessalonians. And He's going to bring vengeance upon those that know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to be very careful about that because it can be a very fearful thing to fall into the hands of a just God. It can be a very fearful thing. But it doesn't have to be. That's a good thing about these statements. They are very harsh at first glance. But notice, He didn't say it had to be that way. He didn't say you had to be on the receiving end of the flaming sword, the punishment of eternal damnation. He said that is a possibility. 
That's going to happen to those who do not occupy. We don't have to have that to happen. We can be obedient. We can know Jesus and we can obey His gospel. We can believe on Him. We can repent of past sins. We can make the great confession that He is the Son of God. We can be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. And we can live faithfully. And when we make mistakes, we can repent of that. We can ask Him to forgive us. And when He returns, He's going to speak to us just as He spoke to those that made the ten pounds and the five respectively. He's going to say, good job. I'm going to give you authority over this or that. Of course, we understand that means He's going to allow us to enter into heaven. At that great day, He will either command, commend us for occupying while He was gone, or He will punish us for not occupying. In order that we occupy, we must first be His servants. We have to do those things we just talked about. We have to obey the gospel. We have to be willing to be patient. We have to be willing to do the things that He's asked us to do. It's not unreasonable. You know, a lot of people, they talk about the Christian lifestyle as if it's something that's so restrictive that no normal human would want to even attempt it. The Christian lifestyle is a wonderful lifestyle. Think of the great fellowship that we all have as brothers and sisters of the one body. Think of having people with you when you are in great need of something, whether physically or emotionally. Support. We're there for one another. What a great feeling. Have you ever felt uh, lonely in this world? Felt like you didn't have anyone? I guess we've all felt that at one point or another. Whether we did or we didn't have someone, we may have felt like we didn't. That's a terrible feeling, isn't it? We don't have to have that. We always have one another. We're in fellowship with one another and with God. See, that's the whole point of, of occupying. Working in the common possession of the gospel. Bringing other people into enjoy this same lifestyle that we enjoy. Nothing bad about the lifestyle of the Christian. Nothing at all. But before we can occupy, we have to obey the gospel. If you find yourself in a situation tonight where you've been occupying, but then you kind of got off track just a little bit, and that happens, don't leave here tonight in that situation. Repent of those things if need be. And let that be known as we stand and as we sing.